everybody. I'm Brian Norcross, along with Luke Doris. This is podcast number seven of Hurricane Season 2021 and podcast number 63 in our series. Today, we're going to talk to Dr. Lixian Avila from the National Hurricane Center. He's recently retired and he was a senior hurricane specialist. Lixian was there for so long that he wrote more hurricane advisories and discussions than anybody else ever has. And his discussions have always had a special flair that reflected his personality. He was famous, Luke, for his turn of phrase in, in uh, writing those discussions that go with every advisory that they put out. Which, so we'll talk to Lixian about starting out in Cuba, coming to the U.S., and ending up a star at the National Hurricane Center. That's coming up here in just a few minutes. We're recording this podcast on Wednesday, July 28th. If you're listening at some point in the future for the latest weather, tune in to Channel 10 in South Florida or Local10.com, where we stream all of the Local 10 newscasts. The Max Tracker Hurricane app, of course, to keep you up to date, and the Local 10 Weather Authority app will have the current weather information. And you can go to local10.com slash hurricane and sign up for the newsletter called From Brian Norcross. I write that most every morning during hurricane season, and especially when there's something going on. You scroll down to the middle of the page, you put in your email address, and we'll email it directly to you. Uh, I do those. Um, I didn't do one today because there wasn't much going on, Luke. In fact, the, the tropics are quiet, even though... Uh, so this has been an interesting week, hasn't it? We had that tropical disturbance that uh, the Hurricane Center was saying was likely to become a tropical depression. Not that this, this timing out when things are going to actually organize is, is uh, forecastable almost. It's very, very difficult to forecast those things, and they didn't get that one right. But we thought that that would influence our weather enough to make storms likely, and we had a few, but we didn't have many. And now here today on this Wednesday, it is pouring and storming outside. Yeah, probably still a little left over from that disturbance. It did help drag a whole bunch of moisture up from the tropics that's still kind of in the air. It's that plus there's a system to our north that's pushing moisture down. So we're kind of getting it from both sides. But anyway, it's rainier today than it was whenever we had this disturbance that was just offshore. That had a nice swirl to it, by the way. Mm -hmm. It looked, you know, like if you just looked at it on satellite, you saw a ring of clouds spinning around, but there were no storms in those clouds. All the storms were blown over to one side and then they got blown over to the other side or the, when the, the upper level winds relaxed on it and it just, like to say, didn't come quite together. Um, but otherwise, yeah, we look out to the tropics, a lot of dust is still out there, as it has been all month long. Uh, we talked about how unusually far south it is. The waters are on the cool side. It's, it's just kind of quiet. Yeah, although the interesting thing about the dust, uh, and as far as the Florida goes, the models that keep wanting to kind of bring a batch of dust, and then when it actually comes closer to the time that it's supposed to arrive, they tend to want to bring less dust. Have you noticed that? Yes. It seems Every like that in advance, it looks like, oh boy, we're going to get a big outbreak of Saharan dust. My sense is that this dust forecasting is not uh, ready for prime time completely. It's certainly nowhere near as good as hurricane track forecasts where the system is going to go. At least not beyond day three. It seems like, you know, days two, three, maybe. But you get beyond that, like, it was over the weekend, and I was looking at what's called the dust extinction, uh, the, the model from NASA. And it, it's got a color table. And the color table goes from dark to bright. And this was white. 
I mean, we're at the top of the scale for the amount of dust that was expected to move mm-hmm. into South Florida. So I go on TV on Saturday and say, hey, look, long-range forecast, the end of next weekend, dust comes in. Might be enough if you have COPD or asthma, this could cause problems because this looks like a big old slug of it. And then today, it's such a small, thin little ribbon that is now modeled to pass over South Florida that it could actually enhance storms because it could act kind of like a cap. And, you know, you shake a bottle with a cap on it, and then you take the, the cap off, and boom, we could get a lot of storms to pop. So it's tricky business, yeah. Yeah, a little bit of dust can make it stormier. A lot of dust dries out the atmosphere, and the the moisture at the surface can't fight through that, and we end up with a hazy, milky uh, usually very steamy day underneath the dust if you have a big uh, dust layer. But yes, I don't think that's that technology is is uh, you know at, it's certainly not as good as hurricane technology in terms of storm tracking at this point. But um, it is what we have, and it is amazing, I guess, compared to what we had um, just a few years ago. So for now, things are quiet, but of course, on average, things are quiet at the end of July. You know, we haven't ever had a hurricane. Uh, in South Florida uh, in August before August 16th, and the one August 16th was actually a very marginal one. So, you know, normally we don't get a bunch of storm threats this time of year, so it's actually behaving right. We got so uh, used to last year having storms all the time from every direction that, uh, you know, we kind of get used to the hurricane season behaving like that, but this year it's actually behaving more like it's supposed to, so. Yeah, good for us. So let's bring in my friend and one of the great guys in the hurricane business, Dr. Lixian Avila. Hi, Lix. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to have you. So yeah, you grew up in Cuba, of course. And uh, tell us how life was like there when you were a kid. And how was your high school experience? Was it the same or different from kids here in the U.S.? Well, when you are a kid, everything Mm. is good. (laughs) I love, I grew up on the beach. You know the beach I grew up. Yes, I do. And I wasn't thinking about anything except finish the class and go swimming and watch the thunderstorms in the afternoon and the waves. I was a happy kid in high school. Yes. Were you a weather weenie when you were young or where did that interest come from? Oh, yes, I was. <laughs> I, I was uh, threatened by all the farmers because I always wanted a hurricane and they kept telling me, I'm gonna tie you on a tree, on a palm tree, when a hurricane comes, so you're gonna suffer and you'll see what a hurricane is. Yep. So I imagine there was hurricane coverage on TV when you were young. Do you remember that? Did that make an impression on you at all? Yes, I do remember TV, the director of the Met Service, and I remember the first TV I remember was Hurricane Hattie in 1961, and they what they did is they put the uh, surface map with all the isobars on the hurricane uh, south of Cuba. Every day in the afternoon they had that. So That's were f- you, yeah, w- were you set uh, on whenever it came time to think of going to school? Were you set on meteorology whenever you were planning your, you know, going to the university, and and what was the system for that? Well, I'm telling you, when I went to school, I went to high school, and the last year of high school, you had to take a special uh, test. It's like the, here, the SAT or whatever, you know, to go to the university. And 
it was the summer of 1968 and in order to go to the meteorology school it was not directly the university it was a special class back then now it's different mm -hmm. back then it was a special class at the med service and you have to be interviewed and you have to apply and one of my friends from high school knew somebody at the med service and they said it's going to be an, uh, an opening this year so i went i applied and i was accepted and i began my first day of the med service the school was at the med service they have a school in the back i began september 18 1968. Yeah, well, that's when I started school, too. I think just about exactly on that date. Um, yeah. Actually, I was studying engineering at that time, but I, which is really math and physics at that point. So Cubans, uh, of course, are very proud of the early role that they had in hurricane science. Father Benito Abinez issued what amounted to a hurricane warning in the 1870s, way before anything like that was happening in the U.S. And his office in Havana at the College of Berlin there is uh, an attraction, uh, tourist yeah. attraction today. Was that meteorological history, you know, part of your curriculum? Uh, I know Cubans are very, very proud of it today. I assume they were then. I have to admit that during those years in the 60s and early 70s, the Cuban government, everything that was related to the church was ignored. Ah. It was much later, like in the 80s, when the Pope went to Cuba, mm -hmm. that they opened that. But I knew everything because I, I was lucky enough like I was lucky here at the Hurricane Center to work with the top guys in there. And they always talked to me about the old times, the story of, of the big fight between the, 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 the weather service, the, what they call the weather service and the, and the church observatory. And they talked to me. In fact, there's so many interesting stories about me. Yes, the director of the Hurricane Center. So they told me, oh, I have a lot of history that I'm saving for a book that I'm going to write <laughs> one day. So you, when you're talking about the, the weather service, you're talking about the Cuban uh, Met Service because there was a battle within Cuba. There was also, going back to the 1900 hurricane, the battle between the Cuban Met Service and the Americans because oh, the yeah. Americans were in control and they wouldn't pay attention to the Cubans, but the Cubans <laughs> knew, knew what was going on and the Americans had it completely wrong. So it's, uh, it, there's quite a history there of uh, but, politics but and weather have, going together. But I have the feelings that that was the only big uh, fight, I would say, or discussion mm -hmm. between the United States and Cuba during the 1900s. After that, things got much better and much better, and the director of the Weather Bureau went to Cuba, and I have photographs of back then, so things changed after that. Yeah, yeah, that that was an odd confluence of personalities, really, that caused that uh, issue yeah. in the 1900 hurricane. So the legacy of quality meteorology continued in Cuba in spite of all these government changes that happened through the 20th century, right? Uh, talk about the, the Cuban Met service that you, you worked in. How did they 
operate at the time that you were there uh, in school, you know, in the the Met service at that time? But, you know, what kind of equipment did they have? Uh, how did they make forecasts and so forth? Oh, it was, uh, I just, okay, it was very interesting because when you're going to school in there, I had all my classes in the morning, the math, physics, mm -hmm. all the things. And in the afternoon, I had to work in some branch of the med service. But of course, I was in the uh, weather department, synoptic mm -hmm. department. Some people well, went to uh, cloud physics, some other people, I was working in the forecast department. And I had to work there this afternoon. And it was the typical med office from the 60s. You had the surface map, the upper air map, and you, you had the rain sun, you had the rainfall data. It was not very different mm -hmm. than, than in the, the rest of the world. I mean, at that time. Right, but right. It was, but of course, it was, yeah. I, I don't even know how I was able, well, to make a forecast, but the forecast was only 24 hours. The daily forecast. I mean, you got the open air sounding from Cayman and Key West. Well, if the wind is from the south in Cayman, you're going to forecast thunders in, in 700 millibars. <laughs> you know, you, you, you forecast uh, rain from western Cuba. You know, there are little bit of rules. You did the surface map and you put the two fingers. It was a special map with a special size. If you put the two fingers on the north coast of Cuba, you get gales. I mean, the isobars are in between two fingers. But those were rules. That's great. That yeah, for a long time. I mean, all the way through the 80s. Um, at least through the 80s, exactly. That's how we forecast the weather. Hey, Luke? Hats off. It, you know, I almost I feel like spoiled rotten because by the time I came into the game, it's we had computers and everything's all so pretty and laid out, and it's so easy to fall back on that instead of going to, you know, focusing so much on current conditions and uh, the radio songs and all of that. So uh, what an education that had to have been. I mean, to get your education in the morning, apply it in the afternoon. Uh, we just derived equations in Oklahoma. It seems like uh, <laughs> forecasting was a definite afterthought. But did, did you always want to come to the U.S. to continue your studies? How did that happen? I was very lucky, like uh, many Cubans were lucky to be able to come to the United States. There was a moment that the conditions were proper and I went to the American Embassy in Hidena and my mother's relatives were all in the United States, my grandmother and my father was a political prisoner and because of all that I was able to go to the American Embassy and get a visa and come legally to the United States. And I was so lucky, arrived to the United States. I was working in a plumbing supply, and I didn't know there was a school of meteorology, and I ended up swimming near University of Miami to Erasmus. And Ryan knows the story. I, they told me, what are you looking at the clouds? The, one of the professors that was playing volleyball in the, in the, front, in the front, and I said, with I was a meteorologist in Cuba, and I didn't even know that was the school. And he said, why don't you come to school here? I said, I don't have any money. It's just expensive. He said, now come over. So that was like a Thursday or Friday. I went Monday, 
I do remember my aunt ironed my shirt and my little coat, and I went there. They interviewed me in Rasmus, four faculty members, and they said, if you pass the English test, you will enroll the 1st of September. And that was like mm, July, uh, <laughs> June. And voila, I was enrolling in the master's program and uh, I was lucky enough. There was one thing I did that they let you, if you get a high pass in your master's degree, you can go directly to the PhD. But I said, no, I want to have some papers in the United States. So I finished my master. I guess Brian and I are very lucky mm -hmm. people. We're always at the right place at the right time. <laughs> and the day I defended my master's, the chairman of the Rasmus came to my, my presentation and said, this is the kind of presentations I want to have in this school. I want him to continue for his PhD, and he gave me a case of champagne. There we wow. go. I got there you go. That's great. I mean, that is. That, but that was, was your initial. Was your initial enrollment when uh, the professor had seen you looking at the clouds and you were able to get it? Was that out of respect for the Cuban uh, experience that you'd had? Um, no, he didn't know who I was. No, no, he didn't know who I was. Wow. That's no, no, incredible. it was just out of the blue. It was just out of the blue. They were playing volleyball. And and they asked me, it was pure luck. And of course, mm. uh, that as soon as I got enrolled at the uh, University of Miami, Neil Frank gave me, well, Neil Frank gave me a letter of recommendation because I went to the Hurricane Center one day. And he said, well, so when I was you're ready, one day you probably work here. And and then as a student, I was working for Bill Gray. I was working then, I, later on, I was able to help Vernon Dvorak with his, his uh, theory of, because he was, as you understand, he had to walk on crutches and he couldn't carry boxes from the basement of the Hurricane Center to look at the satellites. So that paper that he wrote, I got all these pictures and he was telling me look at this and look at that that was I'm, I'm lucky all those things that happened to me well tell me more about that so you're at the University of Miami you just walk into the National Hurricane Center and you, you start to kind of have a job there what, what happened tell me about those days I'll tell you this there was a liaison once you the University of Miami historically a liaison between the National Hurricane Center and the University of Miami. So every day there was a map discussion. And somebody had to copy the map, the surface map from the Hurricane Center and take it to Rasmus. So I volunteer to get the map every day, driving, pick up the map. So of course, pick up the map every day, I get to talk to Gil Clark, get to talk to John Hope, talk to all of them, they loved me. They really helped me. Why don't you come later and help us? Until one day Neil Frank said to me, would you like to, uh, would you like to uh, help us when there is a hurricane giving information in Spanish? 
What about $20 an hour? That was the first. I almost died, you know. <laughs> I almost died. And I was doing that for a long time, doing, going into a TV. And, and, because before me was Jose Partagas. Mm -hmm. Wow. But Jose was reading that he was an old person. He was very respectful and all that, but he was just reading. I was younger. I was giving, you know, I was copying Brian. Uh, Brian wasn't <laughs> in Miami yet. <laughs> but, but it was, it was uh, that how I, I began. And then uh, Bill Gray needed somebody who collected data from the Hurricane Center. And Charlie Newman said, I have the perfect person. And the forecasters, John Hope and all that, said, oh, he's going to do it. So I did it. Yeah. And he paid me $100 a week. Wow. It. Which was a lot of money back then. When, oh, no. Yeah, when the gasoline, I used to wait for the gas to go down to 19.9 at the gas station before I'd fill up. I'd run on fumes, you know, until the gas wars would go down to 19.9 cents a gallon. It's crazy. But so. It was, the, the names you're throwing out, Lix, uh, I mean, they are the all-time legends, the greats of meteorology. For people that don't know, Neil Frank really was the first, I wouldn't just say the first modern National Hurricane Center director, not, not to take anything away from his predecessors, but Neil really took the Hurricane Center, uh, the communications coming out of the Hurricane Center to a different level, the interaction with the public to a different level. So I think that that probably dictated to some degree the idea of, of branching out into Spanish, uh, well, you know, he, beyond he what they was, had done. He was the one who really connected the emergency managers with the Hurricane Center. It was a complete disconnect and he began to to do that. And Neil hired me mm -hmm. and, and I mean, later on, mm -hmm. but I mean, first he hired me as a forecaster, I mean, not forecaster, to, to get the advisory. And he trusts me because he didn't know a word of Spanish, but he trusts <laughs> me what I was just saying. And and uh, that was Neil Frank and then Bob. And But my main contact was with Gil Clark and John Hope and Miles Lawrence and Hal Gerrish became hurricane specialist. But Hal Gerrish was my meteorology professor in Rasmus. Wow, I didn't know I I knew Hal, but I didn't know know that he did that. Yeah, these these names are are the the greats of Hurricane Center history. Not to take anything away from the amazing no. uh, people oh, no. at the Hurricane Center today, but but I mean in terms of creating the modern version of the National Hurricane Center that we know today and writing advisories that kind of in a style that we know today, uh, that began with Miles Lawrence and, and John Hope, certainly, which people learn to know from the Weather Paul Channel, and, and Paul, Paul Aber, right? Paul was, I have letters signed by Paul Aber. I have yeah. other things when I it really, it, because Paul had to sign my checks when I did the interviews. Paul <laughs> had to sign the checks, so I had those papers saved. Well, he I ended was, up being the MIC and running the National Weather a, Service office in Miami, right? Yeah, he, after, but he was a hurricane special. Yes, yes, he was, and and, and Joe, uh, Joe Pelsier, right? He was a good friend too. Yeah, yeah. It was, yeah. These are the great names for the young people that <laughs> that are listening to this uh, as you read the history of meteorology. These are the these are the names. It really is amazing that that uh, you and to some degree I got to got to experience uh, 
many of them. So you say that you learned, uh, I've heard you say you've learned meteorology in Cuba, but you really didn't learn how to forecast hurricanes uh, until you got to be working with those people at the National Hurricane Center. What's the difference between just meteorology and actually forecasting in a real sense what's going to happen with a storm in the next three days, say? Uh, my knowledge in Cuba, I knew certain things, but it's the difference between working in a forecast office in Cuba that you only have to deal with the hurricane when it's near Cuba to work in a national center that we start tracking the system all the way from Africa to, to near Hawaii and it was not it was not that I learned I'm still there are many things that I'm learning or not but it, it, it the, the, the way it was done here, it was more, it was night and day, to be honest with you. I try, when I give the, the WMO class and all that, to trade all the countries how we issue the forecast here. As, as the knowledge in Cuba, I mean, the knowledge is there, but to be honest with you, most of the countries in the world, that will not change the National Hurricane Center forecast. Mm -hmm. For example, the Cuban Med Service, well, the only time I remember during my time that the Cuban Med Service issued an advisory of a system before the Hurricane Center was Camille. Wow. Because the United States, the Met Service didn't start until the 14, I think, that morning when the plane got there and they said, oh, it became a storm while the plane was there. But the night before, Cayman had 35 knots. I mean, Jamaica, 30, 45 knots, and Cayman had a five millibar pressure drop and 1,007 compared to the road. So the Cubans started like a special note that a depression was forming. That was mm -hmm. the only time I remember. And I do remember Gordon Dunn visiting Havana in the 70s when I was there, early 70s, because he was the WMO liaison of hurricanes of the world, and he had to go to, to Havana. And I, I remember I worked the midnight, spent the whole day waiting for him to arrive. Yeah, so just to, just to explain for people that don't know the abbreviations, the WMO is the World Meteorological Organization, and Region 4 is the area that the National Hurricane Center leads the meteorology in, and the National Hurricane Center director is the chair of, of that committee, which you have participated in for years and years and years and years, coordinating with the, uh, the countries there in the Caribbean That's and around the That's why I don't have a degree in communication. You need <laughs> somebody like Brian <laughs> Yeah, it's just me all the time, too. Back up, Luke. Let's explain this. So when did you start issuing your own forecast for the National Hurricane Center, and what kind of technology did you have when you started? That's another good story. <laughs> I mean, my first name, the first time I put my name on the advisory was Hurricane Jerry in 1989. 89, yes, they told me 
I think it was 89. So that would have been after Hugo, the year of Hugo, but after Hugo? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But the thing is, I like that, and there were two, like today, they have the senior hurricane specialist, and they used to call back then junior hurricane specialist. <laughs> that was Max Mayfield and I, the junior. And Gil wow. Clark and, and, and uh, the other ones were the senior. But they told me, okay, you're going to write advisories, but if there are watches and warnings, you somebody else has to do it. You can't, neither me nor Max. Mm -hmm. Well, there was nobody else there, so I had to mm -hmm. issue the warnings for the Gulf that, that year. Mm -hmm. And that was fine. That was in 89, uh, Hurricane Jerry or Tropical Storm Jerry. When I used, but I, I issued advisories before, but that, well, no, actually, that was the first advisory. Because before I was working in Taft B with Max, we went together, Max and I. We worked together in the analysis and forecast unit, and then Max became, and I became a junior hurricane specialist. Then Max became a senior hurricane specialist before me, and then me, I became a, a senior. That's a rapid rise uh, for the ranks, no doubt. So, so uh, I'm trying to get a, an idea of what the uh, technology was like back then, and, and what did you think of it? Did you feel like it, you had great technology at your hands, or did it feel primitive and you wanted more? What was it like? I have seen the technology change. Like, I can go back to Cuba when we had one satellite picture a day, we used to get the American satellite and the horrendous Russian satellite that it had a very good resolution, but you never knew when it's going to go by. And you got the NOAA polar orbiter that you knew exactly what time, the equipment to get it. And there's another story with, with that, with the Russians in Cuba, and that was they have all this 1940 uh, teletypes. Back then, the communications was by teletype. Right. You know, they send the observations and numbers and paper. And they said, okay, we're going to put all this Russian teletypes. Well, they last a month. They all broke in media. They had to put the all American back. And that until a few years ago that they disconnected the line between Miami and Havana, which is not used, it's called uh, uh, 7019. In Spanish, 7019. It was a direct line from the Hurricane Center on the ground to Havana for, for that, from the 40s, it was there. But it was a low communication line, it didn't do much. But back then, it was good. But the technology, oh my God, then at the Hurricane Center, I had to get pictures from a fax. That was, and I have to every day get all these pictures and put it in an envelope. And it, it was, I mean, the changes. Come on. In 1980, we only had one 500 mobile map a day. In fact, three day forecast, and it came at 5 p.m. At 5 p.m., you get the 500 mobile map. 
now you got enough to gag a horse. Now you have <laughs> yeah. to throw away some of them out. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, well, uh, it was really, I remember the facts where, where the satellite images came on the facts. Working in television, when I first started in television, the, the only way you got a satellite loop was that the network, in my case, it was my first station was an ABC station, they somehow got the loop from NOAA and they fed it down as a piece of video. So it came in the afternoon and that's the, you had that one loop for the day and you had to use that on the early news and the late news. And it was just a kind of wide view of the country in a satellite kind of uh, uh, projection. There was no, no getting data. <laughs> you know, it was there, there, I always uh, complain about the television satellite loops because I understand they were not made for me they're made for the public. So even today, the worst thing I can see on TV is those colorful satellite loop that doesn't give you anything. Instead, why don't you use a beautiful visible picture that you can see everything during the day? Now they show all these colors, but of course, the people only look at the colors. I look at the business. <laughs> so when I see one of those pictures, I change the channel. <laughs> yeah. The channel used to be so beautiful. Visible uh, when Brian was there, I remember visible picture. Yes. All the time. I, I, I believe in those visible pictures, too, Lex. So during, during you, you, you alluded to this, during the time you've been making hurricane forecasts, things have changed a lot. And one of the big ways is this incredible increase in the amount of data that comes into the hurricane center that you have to consider for each advisory. Is there, in all of those changes, is there some innovation or new technique that has stood out to you as being a game changer during that time? Or is it really mostly the the accumulation of, of so much new uh, data being available? I think the most significant change I have seen is the quality of the numerical models. That is the biggest change. The visible satellite picture, I, they are, you have more often satellite mm -hmm. pictures, you have beautiful resolution, but I can still see the, the satellite pictures from the old time and I can still make a forecast. The Borak technique is made from pictures in the 80s and mm -hmm. I can do that, but numerical weather prediction. And of course, now you have the scatterometer that sometimes, uh, there's one thing I'm gonna mention after this, is mm -hmm. the scatterometer comes in and, and I always say, I cannot wait for this thing to follow the sky because it ruins you. <laughs> your position but that was what i was going to say all right explain that so so a scatterometer is like a radar in space the essentially yes. that kind of looks down and we use that data to understand if somewhere down there there's a circulation kind of how strong the winds might be so so what to me but, 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 that that helps but tell, tell me what you're the pro here what complicates about that it's not like you have any constant maybe you have that satellite passing once a day. Right, right. So I'm unlucky because <laughs> I was lucky for all the stuff, but on my ship, that thing never went over the storm. It was all on the border. And sometimes I said, well, that's good because if I said in the advisory 40 knots and, and the scatterometer had 55, I had to issue a special advisory. You know, <laughs> oh, yeah. right, right. The old timers, 
the old timers like me and Richard Patch, <laughs> you know, they always, but that's normal. We always think of the new technology, but, but it's fantastic. That the scatterometer is really, really good. Have you noticed that before, years ago, there was always the morning visible satellite picture surprise, especially in the East Pacific. We had a system, we, we thought it was in the convection, and when the first visible came in, the system was completely located in a different place. <laughs> in a whole well, different place, that's right, yes. And well, sometimes way out in the Eastern Atlantic, too, same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But right. nowadays, those special advisors for that have changed. Now it changed more for, not for location as much as for the intensity. Intensity. Tells you that it's weaker, that it's stronger, and it's really, it's really fascinating. To, to have it this. is. It's amazing. It really, it still amazes me, actually. And, and, so, and then you have visible picture at night. They print the right. Uh, I mean, this new kid. I call them kids because mm -hmm. I'm old. Mm -hmm. This new kids at the hurricane that they have it all. They have everything possible. But of course, when I was working many years ago. Gordon Dunn told me the same thing. You have it all now. I yeah. didn't have anything. So it's, yeah. It's, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is amazing because, I mean, you always have more every year. And so everything that's new is amazing. You don't really, you know, project ahead 10 or 15 years because you just don't not really have any idea what's going to come along. But, so but you, you were, go, go ahead, Lex. Computer models is. I yeah, mean, that, that's the models. biggest thing. You're right. The, the, the GFS, the European, the global models. This is amazing what, what you have today. Yeah, uh, I mean, that's changed so dramatically how accurate the track forecasts are these days. It's all because of the computer capacity and the, and the uh, improvement of the models. So you were famous uh, when you were writing the uh, discussions for short and pithy technical discussions, used to be called intergovernmental discussions. Where did, where did that come from? Did somebody teach you to write that way, or is that just your personality coming out? Well, it's a combination of things. <laughs> English, number one, English is not my native tongue. <laughs> oh, really? The more you write, the more chances <laughs> you have to make a mistake. Yeah, okay. That's number one. <laughs> number two, Miles Lawrence mm -hmm. always told me, enough can be said about brevity. <laughs> Don't put, sometimes you read a discussion and it's so long that by the end you finish reading, you don't know which way the hurricane is going. <laughs> and I worked there. So I tried to be, I was trying to be, that's how I learned with Max, with Gil Clark, of course, Things got better because we have more things to talk about. This poor people didn't have anything to talk about. Now we have all this data to discuss, all this, uh, the story of the hurricane, hunter planes. I mean, all those things are really, I remember, in, in it's more difficult. But yes, I, I also then when I had James Franklin, he didn't like, because, James Franklin is a perfectionist in English. Yes, <laughs> yeah. But he said, but when people send to the website comments, the, the webmaster always tells me, you win. Everybody mm -hmm. loves your discussions. 
And James used to tell me, yeah, they love it because they are cute. <laughs> yeah, they are cute. And I said, well, <laughs> and yours are boring. <laughs> you cannot be but very boring. precise. I mean, James was an outstanding meteorologist, but extremely yeah. precise. precise. Yes. But, I, but I didn't say anything wrong either. Yes. I just have a little bit of like, uh, I love to put in the headline things like, uh, I was the first one to put hello, Dolly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I was the first one when Katrina, I was over the Hurricane Center, I said, I, Katrina, over the Hurricane Center. I like it a little bit. And you know what? All these new kids have a book and they have copied all of my <laughs> old things. They all used it. Solinsky mm -hmm. tell me, I'm <laughs> thinking about you, Lexium. When he texted me when he's writing, he said, I just thought you're going to like this because it's one of yours. You know, mm -hmm. but it's fun. Yeah, it is fun. It is fun. And it's, that's called communications, Lex. With, without being wrong. Mm -hmm. I mean, right. without exactly. being wrong. Yeah. yeah. Keep it as simple as possible, but no simpler, I suppose, is uh, it's <laughs> something that I, I try. I'm not very good at. And I've heard, too, I don't know if this is true. But uh, I've read, actually, that you learn better if you're smiling. So maybe that cements in people's brains when they used to read your discussions and you know, Hello, Dolly was at the very top of it. Now they're in it. Now, now they're engaged. It makes all the sense. So tell me about your role at the National Hurricane Center where you were working with other countries in the Caribbean and, I guess, the world, for that matter. Well, that's, for me, that's one of my... I'm proud of that I was able to help and save lives uh, in the Caribbean. Uh, I am able to, to, I was always very well connected to the director of the Met Services, both the English speaking and the Spanish speaking. I was able to, to, to communicate with them. I was able to help. Um, and I was always there for them. And I do remember the director of uh, Curacao many, many years ago, Arthur Dania. He said, Lixion, you help us because you know the pain we suffer when we have a hurricane because you're one of the Caribbean people. They see me like a Caribbean man. They always saw me like a Caribbean, a Cuban man. They never saw me like the gringo telling me what to do. They almost saw like the Caribbean man. And I took advantage of that to help the Hurricane Center, NOAA, and always represent the United States the best I could. Yeah, I imagine. And not to mention that you were much more fluent in a lot of the, you know, in speaking just language to a lot of people. I bet that that was very instrumental. So in all of your interactions with meteorological services around the world, did politics ever come into play or... Uh, is meteorology above any political differences that governments may may have had? I'm going to say one phrase that one uh, one common friend that Brian and I have. It's like Jose from Cuba. He's part of the uh, Med Services. And all. He says, a hurricane doesn't need a visa to enter in any country. Mm -hmm. They just go. And in reality, no. We meteorologists, we help each other, and our main goal is to save lives and property. And we mm, perhaps 
we might have some political uh, differences, but that's, uh, we don't, I might have a political difference and I can talk with somebody with a beer, but not when it comes to work. It didn't work. And I can tell you this, and Brian knows that, even during the uh, Russian missiles in Cuba, the flow of data between Cuba and the United States never stopped. Hmm. Well, the observation. Right, right. So to, to this day, the Cuban Meteorological Institute, El Instituto de Meteorología in Casablanca, I love that word, meteorología, uh, yeah. in, in Havana, is exceptionally professional. The, the uh, National Hurricane Center coordinates closely with meteorologists there, right? Um, it's, it's pretty rare for a storm to come out of Cuba that, that we don't need that data, or, yeah. that we don't need data, or pretty rare for a, state, for a storm to come out of the Caribbean that we don't need data from Cuba, so it only yeah. makes sense what you're talking about, right? Yeah, it, they communicate, but, but it's the same with the Dominican Republic, the same mm -hmm. with Mexico, Cayman Islands. It's a really good, and I have worked so many years to have that combination, that trust between the forecasters, and, and I'm afraid because many of the older people in the Caribbean are retiring, just like mm -hmm. me. And the new generation has a different, so we need to engage the new generation. I'm not talking about in terms of politics, in terms of the, the, the work, the things, but, but it's, it's all right. That's why they rehired me and I began Monday to, to, not to forecast, but to continue with the communication in the Caribbean. Yeah, that connection is so important. It's important for the United States as well as for oh, yeah. so many friends uh, in the Caribbean. So in Cuba, is TV still the main way people there get informed about hurricanes? When I saw Cuban TV back in the day, the, the coverage was very complete. And, and you mentioned Jose Rubiera, who was yeah. a star in that, that country. I mean, a superstar in that country. Is it still that way in Cuba today? I I have one little story you have not seen because it's all in the media, in the uh, Facebook thing. There's one new girl. She works at the mess service. The TV meteorologist in, in Cuba work for the med service and they get extra money to go to the TV. Mm -hmm. And when Irma, no, not Irma. No, Elsa. What's the name of the last? The East El Elsa. 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 Yes. <laughs> last week, this girl that was on TV, she came to the class. But of course, she had a different style. And the whole Cuba was making fun of the poor girl because she just, they were used to Jose. And she came out and said, oh, this tormenta is atormentada. She's a stormy. She didn't know how to think. But some people love it. But mm -hmm. the bottom line is that Cuba is very, uh, in general, they pay attention to the TV weather because they're qualified people. If they are not people that just take uh, one little class in one place for two weeks and then they become TV meteorologists. Now those are meteorologists from the med service that go over there and, and, and that. So, but it, it is still, they, they have the, the weather every day and I think two or three times a day and people watch the weather. Of course, everybody makes fun 
of the meteorologist and the entire world. Mm -hmm. Remember, if Brian forecasts that it's going to rain, if a, if a doctor, a patient die, only the family and a few friends know that the patient died. But when you say it's going to rain and it doesn't, you have the whole country heard you that it was going to rain and it did and more people to judge. Mm -hmm. so, <laughs> That's true. <laughs> that, that is the case. Yeah, predicting the future is tough business. <laughs> <laughs> it's not easy stuff. So what's your, what's your advice to young people that might want to go work for the National Hurricane Center and follow in your footsteps? What would you say to them? First of all, they have to be honest with the science. Learn, learn as much as modeling and the new technology. And if they want to come to the Hurricane Center, I have been to every med service in the world and hurricane office. This is the best in the world. And the people there now are the best that exist in the world. So they have to study, they have to be patient, they have to be honest and think that they are not going to go there and have fun with hurricane. You can have fun at home, but when you're there, you're saving lives and you're protecting people. Well, no doubt it is, you guys are the premier hurricane forecasters of the world. It's just remarkable what you do there. You are just a wealth of knowledge. You've had, you've got so much experience. Uh, what kind of forecasting tips and tricks would you would you pass on to say somebody like me? You know, I haven't been in this game nearly as long as you have. What would you say? What are some forecasting? Tips? Oh, they all. But I use things in in plain language with my friends, and I have more connection with some of them than others. But all these young kids, I have expressions, and I, for example, I, I, that I, it might not be true, but but I know once a once a storm is dropped in the Bay of Campeche, you need a crane to pull it out of there because the that the the steering flow is very weak, and and the topography of the area forces the system to stay there, and they always joke about it and. If they want to get something in the Atlantic, I said, if you want to eat a banana, you have to peel it first. It means you have to suffer and get some in the Pacific that nobody wants to work. Everybody wants the Atlantic. So I have my old tricks that they all know because I, I'm, I talk, I'm vocal, but nothing is scientific. They, and the science, they are all so good and they're much better nowadays because they already have more knowledge than me. I might have more history, but they, they are so good. They're all of them, all of these new kids in there. It is, it is really amazing. I mean, I've been along, around not as long as you, but working with the Hurricane Center over the last uh, 35 years, more than that, directly, and to see the quality of the young people it, uh, and their ability to write and communicate. Talking to Robbie Berg about this here on the podcast a few weeks ago, it, the ability to communicate today of young people working at the Hurricane Center, not in general in society, by the way, but at the Hurricane Center, it, it is remarkable, I think. Well, Robbie is, for me, is one mm -hmm. of the 
when you read the discussion written by Robbie, it's so clear. There's mm -hmm. no no room for for mistakes or anything. He's so perfect mm -hmm. in writing, and and that's his biggest skill. He's able to communicate. However, if you might talk to him one to one, he might be quiet. But when he expresses something scientifically in a discussion, he's amazing. Yeah, yeah, it's absolutely true. He and and a number of the other. In fact. Uh, there's not anyone that I would say. Well, okay, it's not. It's not going to be a good discussion. They're all uh, the I young ones are just amazing. Yes, of course, of course. All right, all right, Well, go ahead. Once I was the youngest hurricane specialist ever in the mm -hmm. United States because back then there were positions for life, so there were people already. But when I left. I was the oldest in the United States. Yeah. Yeah. When I was in TV many years ago, they called me Flash because um, I was, you know, doing 17 things at the same time. And I was the youngest one in the in the newsroom there. And now it's just the opposite. So, yes, Lick, since you and I are almost exactly the same age, I can say with certainty that, that you still have a lot of time to do a lot of things, and I know you will. So um, it's great that you're, you're going to work with the Hurricane Center, and it's great you're going to uh, continue with your passion of working with the, the Met Services in the Caribbean, and uh, um, keeping that connection going is so important for forecasting for the U.S., but also because we have so many friends there to be sure that they have the best service they can. So um, that's great to know that you're going to continue that. And thank you for inviting me. This is uh, fun. And look, are you in Miami? Yeah. I'm in Fort Lauderdale. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, South Florida. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. We're, you know, we're um, all linked in with Channel 10. So, all right, Lix, uh, thanks uh, for being with us. It was great to talk to you. Uh, be well. We'll talk to you soon. You can edit all you want. <laughs> Take care. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Dr. Lixian Avila, a retired senior hurricane forecaster at the National Hurricane Center. And it's great that Lixian is going to continue uh, working with the Hurricane Center because hurricanes are definitely in his blood, wouldn't you say? Yeah, he's the kind of guy I'd like to have a beer with to just listen to stories. Uh, he's got them for days. There is no doubt about that. He started he's, a lot of a census with, here's a story for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's great. So, Luke, uh, what do you remember about the technology when you first started making forecasts? Uh, has it changed significantly in your time? Mine has been more of an evolution than a revolution in most cases. All right. So I didn't, I, you know, some uh, the weather weenies, they start forecasting when they're nine years old. I was not one of those. I didn't make a forecast until I was in college and started studying meteorology. I always had the interest. So my beginnings of forecasting was 2007, 2008, something like that. And it's not changed drastically since then. Some things that have been really helpful have been we got the news go 16, go 17 satellites. Those are great. Mm -hmm. So that was that was a big jump. The high resolution weather models the hrrr and some of these are just incredible but even back in but not for hurricanes you're talking about for just daily weather just forecasting daily. Yeah, yeah sure so uh you know I, when did the h wharf come online and some of these you know 
It's been around okay. quite a long time, but you know, the H-Wharf evolves every year. So it's a drastically different model, this high resolution, uh, super high resolution nested model that has, uh, is it, I don't remember what the latest resolution is, but it's very, very high of the core of the hurricane. So in theory, you know, they keep working on it, working on it. Hopefully this will be the answer to how strong the storm is going to be. Yeah, yeah, it's right. an incredible piece of technology. And the, yeah. the, the biggest thing that's changed for me since then and now has been the communication side because we have Facebook, we have Twitter, yeah, social media. So, you know, and trying to figure out how do we get information out on social media, uh, how important is that? Um, that's really been the biggest change, I'd say. Yeah, and so many, so many more news programs to do on TV. Too. I mean, on uh, Channel 10, we do news starting at 4.30 in the morning till 11 o'clock at night. There's only a few hours during the day and we don't do news. I mean, that's just, even in your time, that's been a significant difference, I would think. Oh, when I started, it was, uh, we had the 5, 6, and 10. Uh, mm -hmm. and that was not at, at WPLG, it was at my first station. And then now, it's the, the noon, 3, 3.30, 4, all the way to 6.30, there's a little break. Then we do, there are cut-ins and things that mm -hmm. happen even in between the shows. Then you're back for the 10 o'clock on the WSFL station, then the 11 o'clock on WPLG. And then if there's a significant news or weather story, we do the 1 o'clock news. 1 o'clock in the morning, we will do news. If it's not, then they do a rerun, and then boom, it starts back up at 4.30 in the morning. So yeah. it's, it's relentless these days. Yeah, yeah. It is. It is. But, you know, that's the reality of that's what local TV stations are for, you know, is, is it becomes a local news channel uh, really as the entertainment business changer or local news and, and sports and live event channel, I guess. So I have a story about uh, Cuba. We talked a lot about Cuba. My first time there, uh, uh, Lixine was there, actually, was in uh, 2002 following Hurricane Michelle, which happened the previous year. Uh, Michelle moved out of the Caribbean and hit the southern coast of Cuba uh, near the Bay of Pigs, actually just west of a city called Cienfuegos um, as a category four. And it, it caused major damage in Matanzas province, which is to the east of Havana. And it's a big agricultural part of the island. So it was a really a bad event for Cuba. And uh, we were covering it very carefully in South Florida because for a while it was kind of coming right in our direction. So I went uh, th when I was there to Casablanca, which is a part of uh, Havana. It's where the Meteorological Institute is. They let me go through the archives of these original track books that went back almost to the beginning of the 20th century. It was this room in the basement that didn't have any air conditioning and these old books were in there. And I'm thinking, oh, what, uh, you know, it'd be horrible to, to lose this. But I went back I remember looking at the 1926 Great Miami Hurricane because one of the issues with that hurricane was that we didn't have good data on the day before. The, the, the uh, reports out of Nassau came in late and there really, you know, not a lot of data out there. And so I wanted to see what the Cubans knew about it. And I looked back and sure enough, they had a big void kind of where the hurricane uh, was uh, on the day before it hit Miami, so they didn't know really either. That was, uh, anyway, that was kind of a, an interesting thing. And anyway, the people there were just great. And uh, I, I met um, the lead meteorologist, who was the, the guy that uh, Lix and I were talking about, Jose Rubiera, who was the famous 
weathercaster, so he worked in the, the Met service, and then he was the guy on TV. And I, when I told the taxi driver that I was a meteorologist, um, meteorologo, in Espanol, he, he couldn't stop talking about Jose. And then when I said that I knew Jose, I thought he was like not gonna charge me. He, he just, he got tears in his eyes. Uh, because uh, Jose was such a, a star in that country. Of course, I, I paid him and I gave him a good tip, as a matter of fact. But uh, the, that first trip to Cuba uh, was a great you know, experience. It really was. It sounds like it. So yeah. what, a star in America versus star there, are they wealthy? Are they... Uh, or, or was it quite a bit different than what you might think of? No, oh, it's a very different thing. No, I mean, um, you know, they... I mean, Jose uh, did fine, but remember that the people that worked in Cuba and worked for the government were paid not in, you know, what are called convertible pesos, but were paid in Cuban pesos, which was a whole separate economy that operated at a different level from the quasi-tourist economy. There wasn't a whole lot of tourist economy then, but it was just beginning. So, no, they were, you know, paid in pesos and operated in pesos, but businesses kind of sometimes operated on two different levels as well. It was very, very complicated. But the people were so highly educated and uh, warm and welcoming. I went to the, the uh, Cuba Vision TV service and they helped me with video of, of Michelle and, and whatnot. Everybody was great. They were really, in my fractured Spanish uh, and their fractured English, we got along um, really great. So anyway, it was a fantastic experience. Uh, so coming up next week, we're going to talk with the man who invented Sahara dust. Well, sort of. Uh, Dr. Joe Prospero of the uh, Professor Emeritus at the University of Miami. Uh, he'll talk about his research to understand how dust propagates across the ocean, how it affects hurricanes. Lots more. That's next week right here on our podcast. So be sure you subscribe to the podcast on your Apple or Android apps so you get notified when a new podcast is online. Although I must say that my iPhone does not notify me for whatever reason anymore. I don't know why, uh, but uh, hopefully yours does. So, of, of course, you can also watch Twitter and Facebook, and we'll let you know there as well. So until then, for Luke Doris, I'm Brian Norcross. Be safe, stay well, get vaccinated if you haven't. It's more important than ever, and we'll see you here next week. 